0: The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 14 looking this morning at verses 1 through 13 for me as somebody who really loves church history I love the story of heroes the heroes of the faith I think about men and women that have courageously stood for Christ throughout 20 centuries of the advance of the gospel and have been willing to lay down their lives we think about the early Christians during the Roman era they were willing to have their blood mingled with the sands of the colosseum that they might stand for Christ and not yield to caesar and not burn that pinch of incense to Caesar. They're willing to stand firm and say, I am a Christian. I believe that Jesus is king. He is my savior. And they were willing to die. And that, that trail of, of blood and courage and love and glory has, has unfolded in every generation for 20 centuries. But I believe, as I study the book of Revelation, that most of the greatest stories are yet to be told. They're yet to happen, actually. That some of the greatest, when all is said and done, some of the greatest witnessing to Christ, the most courageous, will happen in the future. And that as we understand Revelation, as it unfolds, we try to understand the future. The book has been given to us to tell us what must soon take place. It's a book about the future. We're able to understand that some terrible times are coming on planet Earth. As we go to Revelation 14 we come right on the heels of one of the most sobering chapters in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13. Revelation 12 and 13 unfolds the drama behind the scene of current events of politics and government. Revelation 12 depicts a dragon, Satan, who is turning the knobs and pulling the levers and flipping the switches of human history. He's been doing that all along, running the world. He is the prince of this world. He in some sense, owns the world and can give it to anyone he wants to, the dragon. At the end of that chapter, in a very terrifying way, it makes it plain that he hates the children of God. He hates the followers of Jesus, and he will persecute them. He's filled with rage and hates them. And then Revelation 13 unfolds his his weapon of choice at the end of the world to uh, live out, to enact his hatred for the people of God, and that is the beast from the sea. That he stands and calls forth, out of the undulating uh, waves of, of humanity, he's going to call forth this beast, this empire, this world empire, and a head of the beast who becomes, effectively the beast himself, representing this wicked empire, the beast is the Antichrist, the one world ruler that is coming. And it's very plain in chapter 13 that all tribes and languages and peoples and nations will will submit to his authority. But then it becomes religious because he amazingly somehow survives a mortal wound and is in some way, some deceptive way raised from apparent death And so gains the awe and the wonder of the world. And then along comes this second beast, the beast from the earth called the false prophet, who points to the beast from the sea, points to the Antichrist, and commands, compels everyone all over the world to bow down and worship him as God. Absolutely no separation of church and state. The compulsion of the greatest military power the world has ever seen, the greatest uh, police states And and governmental compulsion there will ever have been, forcing individuals to worship the beast. And at the end of the chapter, the, the false prophet compels people to receive a mark on the forehead or on the hand, the mark of the beast, of allegiance, even worship to the beast. And without it, you cannot buy or sell. And the number of the beast, the number of his name, 666, that's exactly where we were a week ago. And now along comes chapter 14. Now, how does this chapter fit into the flow? How do we understand what's going on in this chapter? Revelation 14, I think, is set in the context of understanding the beast that is coming and seeing outcomes. What's going to come beyond that? Will the beast finally win? Will he drag everyone to hell? Or will there be a company of redeemed who make it through, who are able to stand firm and through courage and faith and endurance, faithful endurance, make it to the other side and worship God? And the answer is absolutely, there will be. And so as I look at the first half of this chapter, and I'm going to preach, God willing, three sermons on Revelation 14. As we just look at over this chapter, So it's a response to the horrors, the terror of the Antichrist. The greater power of the gospel to rescue people from all of that. And so we have the image of an angel flying in mid-heaven, in mid-air, proclaiming the eternal gospel to every tribe and language and people and nation. So the idea, the image of the proclamation of the gospel, I think, should be forefront in our mind. Now we begin in this chapter in in verse verse 1 with the, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion... With 144,000. Now look at verse 1. Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Can I just, before we go on, just tell you, this is a hard chapter to interpret. I have a lot of difficulties trying to understand all this. I asked help from my 12-year-old daughter on the way uh, here. We read the text one more time. What do you think, Daphne? So she, she weighed in, gave me some help. Then I met with a, a couple of the, of the guys to prepare for worship and to pray with Andy and Wes. And said, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> so that's where we're at. And that statement, you know, the mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. I don't want that happening. I'm going to do my best to be clear and to explain what I think. And where I don't know, I'm going to say I don't know. Right away, we have an issue here with Mount Zion. Right away. Mount Zion in the Bible is sometimes physical and earthly and sometimes heavenly and spiritual. Both. So what are we going to do? Is this a heavenly scene or an earthly scene? Is Mount Zion, that heavenly Zion spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12, which is not a mountain that can be touched and burned with fire, but a heavenly Zion, a heavenly place where the spirits of the departed saints go to worship and wait for the resurrection. Is that what we're looking at with the Lamb standing there? Or is it earthly, the physical Jerusalem? And it, you know there are arguments for both. And then you've got the 144,000. Who are they? And you have one of two uh, possibilities among evangelical commentators. Either the 144,000 in some sense represent all of us as the redeemed believers in Christ. Or they represent a subset of all the believers. A unique, special, identified subset. And those that think the 144,000 represent everybody say that these words that are are spoken of there are, are in some sense spiritually true of all of us. And those that say the 144,000 is a group within the overall redeemed, the saints, say no, they are t- tagged and marked out as special and unique. So those are the challenges that meet us right away here in verse, in verse 1. Let me just tell you what I think. Either way, if you've got a heavenly Mount Zion or an earthly, this is beyond the finish line for these folks. If, Jesus, if they're with Jesus, they're done. Praise God. So they either are done up in heaven or the second coming of Christ has happened and they're done having seen the victory that's going to be described in Revelation 19. It's the second coming. He's come down to earth like the angel said in Acts chapter 1 to the men of Galilee. They're standing there at the, at the ascension of Jesus and they're standing looking up at the clouds, remember? And they're waiting for Jesus to come right back that he would do his second coming immediately. say, no, no, no. Do not stand here looking up into the sky. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. And Zechariah 14 implies to the same place, Mount Olive, Mount of Olives, possibly, will come back. In the meantime, you know what to do. Jesus just told them what to do. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's your job. Don't stand here on the mountain outside Jerusalem looking up, craning your neck, waiting for Jesus to come back. You have work to do. And so Zechariah 14, however, implies that Jesus will return right there to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. Battle of Armageddon, we'll get to that. There's only so many details we can handle, friends. But there's a battle that's going to be fought. And he will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. So Zechariah 14 implies his actual physical feet will stand on that physical site, Mount Zion. Either way, these folks, they've they've made it through. Praise God. So uh, no matter what you decide, 144,000 is a subset or everybody... Mount Zion, physical or heavenly, either way, these first five verses are celebrations. God's people will survive the reign of the Antichrist. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so that's the encouragement we can can take from it. Now let's talk about these 144,000. Let's try to understand who they are. Like I said, they're either a subset within the larger group or they represent everybody. The first time this number is uh, mentioned is in Revelation 7. So go back to Revelation 7 and and look and see what it says about 144,000 there. Now, we don't know if these 144,000 are the same as the other 144,000. Chapter 7, 14, they're not clearly identified as the same. But let's assume they are. This is what you do in the book of Revelation all the time. Are they the same? Let's assume they are. Well, who are they? Who are they? Verse 3, it says... Do not harm uh, the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then 12 tribes of Israel are listed with 12,000 from each tribe. Now I'm not going to go over what's kind of interesting or unique or a little bit funky about that list of the 12 tribes. I already preached on that. But... What I find interesting is the word tribe, 12 tribes. That word has meaning a moment later to everyone that cares about missions. Because in 7-9, in after this, I looked in there before me, was a great multitude that no one could count from where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. So we see that brother that came to Christ in Central Asia, he's from a specific tribe, a people group that missionaries got sent. That word tribe means something. And why wouldn't it mean something we have the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel? Let's just stick with hermeneutics and say there there are tribes of Israel. These are Jews. Or else it just doesn't mean anything. Those that say they are the same group, the 144,000 from all the 12, I don't know how they understand the word tribe. In what sense I'm from a tribe in Israel. Like I am from Manasseh or I am from Benjamin or I am from Simeon. I don't know what that even means. So, I think it's better to say those 144,000, at least, were sealed from the Jews. I believe that Romans 11 teaches, at the end of redemptive history, toward the very end, right before the second coming of Christ, all Israel will be saved, which says in Romans uh, 11, is that God is going to take the hardening, the blindness away from the minds of the Jews, and they will see at last what so many Gentiles could see so clearly, that the law and the prophets clearly point to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Savior of the world, and they'll repent and believe in him. Many prophecies talk about this. So, this is what I think. If you go back to Revelation 14, then, this is the same 144,000. They are sealed at the end of time, before the second coming of Christ, from the Jewish tribes, and they're unique. They do not represent everyone. There are other reasons in Revelation 14 to think this. That this is not everybody. For example, in verse 4. It says in verse 4, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. That's the NIV 84's translation. It's not a great translation of the second half of that. Let me tell you more literalistically what it says. They did not defile themselves with women, for they are virgins. Okay? They are virgins. Unmarried never having partaken in sexual interaction. First of all, it's so male-dominated, it's hard for me to understand how all, of our, all the brothers and sisters, especially the sisters in Christ, kept themselves from, from being defiled with women. It doesn't make much sense. So that seems to be that this is a group of males. Now, my ESV study Bible footnotes, didn't agree with that, uh, that I looked at this morning. I was looking for any help I could get. But it's like they, in some sense, represent all of the brothers and sisters. I just, it's stretching language to a a breaking point for me. So this seems to be Jewish men who were chaste, who were celibate. Now, there's two aspects to the sexual side. First is they were not immoral. They weren't defiled. They didn't defile themselves sexually. But secondly, they chose, I think, not to be married. I think that's the best way to understand this. Now, I'm going to circle back and talk more about that in a moment. Why they would do that, but I, I'm just trying to identify who the 144,000 is. Also, verse one says the 144,000 had God's name, or the Lamb, sorry, the Lamb's name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. So they are marked with Jesus' name and with the name of the Father. They're believers. This is a direct contrast to the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast identifies those who worship the beast as God. And this seal identifies these 144,000 as those who worship Jesus as God. It's just a clear contrast. And it seems to be a sense of ownership, like on their foreheads. They just think about the lamb all the time. Their, Their thoughts are dominated with the lamb. They're dominated with the glory of God. And they're thinking about him all the time. Now we have a picture of worship, really of heavenly worship. Verse 2 and 3. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So John hears a powerfully loud sound flowing. From heaven. And he likens it to a waterfall and a thunderclap. Two of the loudest sounds you could ever, natural sounds you could ever hear on earth. It's a very loud sound. But unlike, let's say, a thunderclap, this is a beautiful melodic sound. It's a beautiful melodic sound. It's like the sound of, uh, of harpist. The harp is one of two instruments mentioned in the book of Revelation, the other being a trumpet. But here we have harps, and there's that melodic sound. You've heard, like, for me, harp and flute music. That's soothing, kind of, you combine those things, and it's got this soothing thing. But this is loud, but melodic and beautiful. And, and his mind, John, uh, like, hearkens the readers of Revelation back to Revelation 4, where we have that heavenly scene where John had been invited from Patmos, the island of Patmos, through the doorway up into the heavenly realms, and, the, and what he sees there is the throne, a throne with someone seated on it, Almighty God. And you've got that concentric circles, you've got the four living creatures, the 24 elders, you've got all of this, the concentric circles around the throne, so that heavenly scene. And so it's heavenly worship just wafting down, and John is just taken up with it. And by the way, just if you can just pause and say, isn't that refreshing after Revelation 13? After the horror of the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all the terror and the idolatry and wickedness, to know that this song is going to, like it says, hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Isn't it beautiful? Don't you yearn to hear it? I, I'm just tired of the dissonance and the discordant sounds of our tortured earth. And to be able to hear this music. But it's called... A new song. And that's so provocative. I love music, but I'm not trained at all. I was talking to someone yesterday at the Turkey Bowl. I was at the Turkey Bowl. I just loved all all the conversation. We have all these kind of things. Um, For those of you who don't know, Turkey Bowl is something that you're, you're looking... Some of you are looking puzzled. What is the Turkey Bowl? No, it's not the turkey soup you have on Friday with the leftovers. That's not the Turkey Bowl. Turkey Bowl is a football thing done with the youth. But I love going there just to watch the kids play, but also to talk. And we have these great conversations. And uh, I have, I'm not musically trained, but I have a gift of loving music. I just love. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. And I, I just love people who are gifted. But this word, new song, I find provocative. It's like there's some arrangement of, if I could even use this strange language, the s- synapses or receptors of our soul... For a pattern of music no one's ever heard before. But when we hear it, it's going to move us like nothing we've ever heard before. It will be a heavenly song and it will melt us and satisfy us and delight us. And so this new song comes down and John hears it. And it says in verse 3, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed uh, from the earth. This again gives us an idea that the 144,000 are a subset of the larger group of the redeemed. So there's a kind of an honor that's given to these 144,000. They're the only ones that get to sing it. We get to listen to it. John heard it. But they alone have the honor of of singing, of learning this song. They paid for it with their suffering. They paid for it with their courage. Courage. And it also gives strength to that statement that John Piper made in Let the Nations Be Glad, that missions book. That he began with the words or the idea that missions exists because worship doesn't. The purpose of missions is to create where there wasn't before worship for the true living God. There was idolatry before the missionaries came. They were worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. But then the missionaries came to town, and now there's genuine worship. And what Piper says there in that introduction, he says, there will come a day that missions and evangelism will be done and will be fulfilled, but worship will go on forever. And so they're worshiping. It also speaks, as I mentioned, the purity of the 144,000. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. It says in verse 5, also no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And I love what Ben did earlier. Thank you, brother, for that. And I'm going to talk more about it next week. I'm going to preach an entire sermon on verses 9 through 11. Uh, the eternality of hell or eternal conscious torment. There's probably no verses in the entire Bible that describe it better than Revelation fourteen nine through 11. And it merits a special focused study. It's a very sobering topic. But what Ben did was so beautiful is to link struggle that we may have with sexual sin, with the threat of hell. Jesus did that in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye caused you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than to be thrown into the fire of hell. And if your right hand caused you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Spiritual leaders in this church and throughout evangelicalism, we're aware of an epidemic of secret sexual sin, and it is right for us to fear hell in light of that. Talk more about that next week, but these 144,000, they were not defiled. They didn't defile themselves sexually. Now let's talk about the second part. They were virgins, so they, I think, abstained from marriage. Now we got to be careful here. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I think the Roman Catholic Church has got it wrong on clerical celibacy. They require their priests to be celibate, have done so for centuries. They forbid marriage, which Paul calls the doctrine of demons. To forbid marriage or to somehow disparage it as it's unclean... It says in Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is undefiled. There's nothing defiled about a holy marriage bed. And Ephesians 5 likens the relationship between Jesus and his church to the relationship, sexual relationship even between the husband and wife. There's nothing impure about marriage. Marriage is a good gift from God. It's the first human institution that was ever established. Okay, if that's the case, then why did they not get married, these 144,000 redeemed from the Jews? Well, I think it was a conscious choice that they made for the sake of the mission and in light of the times. In light of what was actually going, what will be going on at that time. They chose, as Jesus says in Matthew nineteen twelve, to make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Eunuch there in context means they renounce marriage. Willingly. They weren't commanded to do it by some higher up, some ecclesiastical higher up. It's not the doctrine of demons. They made a choice to be single. Paul extols the spiritual, the practical spiritual value of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. I think these 144,000 did not have divided interests. But he goes beyond that. 1 Corinthians 7 goes beyond that. Paul says, in light of the present crisis, I think it's best. Well, I don't know what he meant. What present crisis was going on. But I think it had to do with a spiritual crisis of persecution and difficulty in the world. 1 Corinthians 7, 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are, single. He's speaking speaking to single people there. And then he says, what I mean, brothers, is the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Do you not see how even more true all those words would be a a couple of years before Jesus returns? During the reign of the Antichrist? Time, if the time was short when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 7, it will be much shorter then. And so maybe these 144,000 renounced marriage so they could be totally focused on the will of Christ. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, it says. It would be very difficult for a married man in those days. Remember how Jesus said how difficult it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers? What about loving Husbands and fathers in that kind of situation. If there is that level of persecution, your job would be to protect and provide for your family. And water will be scarce. Food will be scarce. Mark of the Beast is there. They're hunting down people who will not bow down. And your job would be to take care of your wife and your kids. I was reading a story uh, in a book called Extreme Devotion talks about the persecuted church over 20 centuries, and they give little testimonies from church history of people that have suffered. And Richard Wormbrand, who was a missionary to Romania, talked about the communist era. And he talks about a particular pastor that he knew, uh, Pastor Florescu, who was arrested uh, for being a a Christian leader in that communist country, and was brought in and tortured savagely to the end that they would try to get from him the names of his fellow worshippers he would not yield. He would rather die than give up their names. Until they brought in his 14-year-old son. And they began whipping him and beating him and clearly intended to kill him to get the information from the father. Now, I don't know what you men would think about a situation like that. But I think that would be a weakness for me in Achilles' heel where, and it was for that man, for Pastor Florescu, he said, I can't stand it. His son's name was Alexander. I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to give them what they want. And his son had the strength to say, don't do it. Let me die as a martyr. Let me die with the words Jesus and my fatherland on my lips. But don't make me the son of a traitor. And he did die. You can see now why that would be a weakness because you would have to protect your son in a situation like that. You'd have to protect your family. Your interests would be divided. So I think that's what's going on here. Not any denigration of marriage at all. They're totally dedicated. Look at verse 4. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They are willing to die for Jesus. And and if I can just stop and say, where is the lamb going? Well, he's going to seek and save the lost. And he's going to be doing that right to the final moment. And so he's going to send in a moment an angel in mid heaven to preach the gospel of these people. The hardest, most wicked generation there will ever have been. Still, he's trying to reach them. Still sending the gospel to proclaim the eternal gospel. I think these 144,000 are like, if I could use this language, like SEAL Team 6 or something like that. They are, they are focused, dedicated, can't shut them up witnesses in that final few years of human history. Willing to die for Jesus. And isn't that a measurement? Because God loves these men. Isn't that a measurement of his love for wicked rebels who are cursing him and bowing down to an idol? So he sends them. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. it says the same thing in John 12, verse 24 through 26. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Listen to this. Whoever serves me must follow me. Look at verse 4. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. This is John 12, 26. My father will honor the one who serves me. So I think these are 144,000 honorable men who are willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. And they were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Isn't that word first fruits awesome? First offering, massive harvest to follow. I don't know how many are going to be converted in those final days, final years, but this word, first fruits implies that they're going to be effective as witnesses and bring many to Christ. All right, after the 144,000, we have three angels that are flying over, and we'll deal with them just quickly, because I'm going to go back over the message, especially of the second angel, next week. So these angels come, and they're angelic announcements of judgment, the first angel, Warns people to fear the God who made the earth and everything in it. And to flee to the only refuge there is. And that is the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first angel. The second angel warns people that the evil world system called Babylon the Great. Set up under the Antichrist. Has fallen and the judgment of God is on it. And you ought to flee from its allurements. And its poisonous drink of sexual immorality. The third angel warns people that the consequences of worshiping the Antichrist and of receiving his mark and bowing down to the idol will be eternal conscious torment. Now, these three warnings are given by grace from a loving God who is perfectly just. Wrath is most certainly coming. Be warned. Flee while there's time. God doesn't have to give these warnings, He doesn't have to give any further warnings. The difference, the ultimate difference at the human level, put it that way, not eternally before God, but human, the big difference between, in the end, the redeemed and those who are not redeemed, is what you do with the word of God, and specifically with the warnings. If you take the warnings seriously, you flee to Christ and you find a savior. Those that do not blow them off, think they're insignificant, do not take them to heart. Now, I believe that he will literally send these three angels, but we have their message already recorded for us ahead of time. You can read it right in the Bible. The whole human race has it. They can read it and be warned. So the first angel, verse 6 and 7, is given the eternal gospel to proclaim. Then I, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live in the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Well, the worldwide proclamation of the gospel is the point of redemptive history. That and the faith that comes from it. That's the point. And so we should be thinking about proclamation of the gospel with 144,000. That's what's going on. The angel is a mysterious supplement to the witness of the believers at that point. An angel. This is a bit mysterious. The word angel means a messenger. This is clearly an angel, not like a human messenger. This one is flying in mid-heaven, it says literally, mid-air. This is definitely an angel like we think of an angel. And it was given the gospel to preach. I find that interesting, especially in light of David Platt's video right there. It's like, Lord, how about send angels? Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? No more Lottie Moon offering. No more missionaries. Don't send anybody. Send the angels. Oh, friends, they'll do a bang-up job. They don't need passports, visas, no problem with the TSA. They'll just kind of fly over all that. All right? Relentlessly determined, completely obedient, fearless. You can't kill them. You can't hurt them. You can't arrest them. You can't stop them. Angels. Now, first of all, we need to understand, angels have been involved. Angels were there the day Jesus was born in Bethlehem, announcing His birth, including the theological significance of Him being born Son of David, Savior for the world. Before that, Mary was told by an angel of the Incarnation that He would be Son of God and Son of David. Angels were there at the end of His life, at the empty tomb. An angel came down and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning. And he said, he is not here, he is risen. That's part of the gospel. Christ is risen. Angels have been involved in the strategy of the spread of the gospel. In the book of Acts, it was an angel that told Cornelius to send messengers to go get Peter to come and preach. It was an angel that told Philip to go south to the desert road where he preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. Angels were involved. However... The ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. I don't. I cannot go on and say, not to them. That is not true. Clearly, it was entrusted at least to this one angel to preach the gospel. But what I would say is this: We can't get lazy and lean back on angelic intervention for unreached people groups. We have no biblical right to assume that God will send an angel to an unreached people group. It, we are responsible to reach out to those who have never heard the gospel. That's our calling. Now, if angels went, I think we can see some of the problem. You remember the angel I just mentioned a moment ago that had the appearance like lightning and he rolled back the stone by himself and sat on it? What did the Roman soldiers do when they saw that angel? They shook with fear and became like dead men. If he then shakes and wakes up and says, I have a message I'd like to preach for your salvation. You really should listen to it. I think they'll be ready to listen. But where is the faith in that? That's not God's way. Instead, what does God send? He sends people who are unimpressive. Normal, regular people that are actually easy to despise. Because Jesus was like that. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The apostle Paul was contemptible in appearance, he said. You know, his, his letters are weighty, but, you know, when you hear him speak, he doesn't move the needle much. Not a great spea- speaker. He himself said, I was weak with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. That's who God sends to the world. People like you and me. Weak servants who are sinful and frail. And we are told to go and preach the gospel. We can't rest on the angels. And he has the eternal gospel to preach. What does that word mean to you? Eternal gospel. You know what it means? It means that God had all this worked out before he said, let there be light. He had the whole thing figured out. He knew the message of Christ and him crucified, the gospel. That you who have violated God's laws, who have violated his commandments, who have been defiled sexually. You who have violated all of his ten commandments at different times in your life. That there is forgiveness for you if you trust in the one Savior that there is for the whole human race, the Son of God, Jesus, who came and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and who died on a cross for the sins of the world. If you trust in him and not in your own works, if you repent of your sins, you will be forgiven. That's the eternal gospel. Now, he is told to preach this eternal gospel to those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. So he's going to preach it, but it doesn't mean they're going to believe it. Things will be very, very rough by then. The seven trumpet judgments will have happened. The ecology of the earth has been ravaged. The one world ruler is in place. Many of them have received the mark of the beast already. But there is the angel in mid heaven preaching the gospel. And there is a warning to those who refuse. Verse 7, he said, fear God and give him glory. Fear him because the hour of his judgment has come. And then it points to creation. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and springs of water. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the God who's been doing this, all of this, to planet Earth. Fear him. And then the second angel comes along proclaiming judgment on Babylon. Verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Second angel comes strengthening the message of the first. Babylon is code language. For the worldwide organized human system of wickedness that Satan set up, but it's human. That feeds into the lusts of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life that 1 John 2 mentions. Do not love the world or anything in it. It's the world. And Babylon's going on right now. Spirit of Babylon is, is here now. But it's going to get ramped up like a massive dimmer switch. Ramped right up at the very end. Babylon the great Will be on display, and we'll be talking about it in Revelation 17 and 18, God willing. But what this angel is saying is the whole system is fallen. In an instant, it's going to be thrown down by the second coming of Christ in his glory. See it before it happens. This system you love, all of the worldly stuff you're going after, the things that are alluring your heart, they're fallen things. The maddening wine of her adulteries, this intoxicating brew. Is, is wickedness, and it will destroy your soul. It's a warning. The second angel, it's a warning. And then the third angel, most dreadful of all. Look again at verse 9 through 11. And I won't say hardly anything, because I'm going to give a whole sermon to it next week, but look at it. These are some of the most fearsome verses in the entire Bible. Fearsome. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too, that word too, he also will drink of the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who receive, who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There have been generations of people that did not receive the mark of the beast. They didn't live in that time. They'll be tormented in the same way. That's what the word two means to me. But next week we'll talk more about this. So the, chapter, the section ends, verse 12 and 13, with a call for endurance and obedience, even to the point of death. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So here's the thing. If the 144,000 are a holy select subset, they still are an example to the rest of us. See that in verse 12? This whole thing calls for you to be like them in some respect. You need to imitate their courage, imitate their faithful obedience to the commands of God. That's what it's saying in verse 12. It calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. That patient endurance will be the final test of salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 10, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. <clears throat> now you're thinking, I, I couldn't do it. I can't face it. I'm too weak. Of course, you're too weak. How could you face Satan incarnate with all of his power and be courageous at that moment? How could it even happen? Well, Jesus gave us comfort. He said, When they arrest you, do not worry ahead of time what to say. At that time, it will be given you what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Isn't that sweet? You don't have to write your final words. Some of the greatest statements in church history have been made by dying men and women. And if you ask them in heaven, where did you come up with that? That was really good. Like Felicitas. While I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. Did she think of that ahead of time? Two days in advance. I know what I'm going to say when they kill me. She didn't know what to say. But the Holy Spirit spoke through her. John Huss, What I taught with my life, I now seal with my lips. He didn't come up with that. Now, I don't, I'm not so concerned about whether you say something really pithy at the moment of your death. What I'm saying is not only will the Spirit tell you what to say, He will give you the courage to stand firm even to the end. You will not fall away if you're a genuine believer in Christ. To God be the glory. And then, all who do, who remain faithful to the end in the testimony of Jesus and obey His commandments... Verse 13, come into their reward. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So write it. So here it is written down. John wrote it for us. Get your strength and your courage and faith from the scripture. Read the writing. So write these words. Yes, Lord, I will write it. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. (laughs) The spirit says, yes, I agree with what I'm inspiring. I love that. Write the scripture and the Spirit will testify, it's true. I love that. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Amen. The time of labor will end. The time of suffering will end. It will be a time of eternal Sabbath rest forever in heaven. And your deeds will follow you, and that means in a good way. The Lord will look at your deeds and reward you for whatever was done for His glory, done in obedience to His word, by faith in Jesus, and done with a loving demeanor, He will reward all of that. Applications. Well, I've already preached the gospel. I've already begged any of you who are as yet unconverted, while there's time, flee to Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Read these words and realize this is the God that you're dealing with. You might die this evening, The end time, these things will not have happened yet, but your end has come. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ while there's time. Secondly, though we may not be the 144,000, we can, in verse 12, be inspired by them and other heroes and role models. Let's say, oh God, give me a chance to do something for you for your gospel this week. Give me a chance to say something... Could be on Thursday, you're going to gather together with extended family, and many of them might be unconverted. Say something for Jesus to one of them. Could be in the days that precede it, maybe on the college campus, maybe in the workplace. You'll have a chance to talk about Thanksgiving. Ask this a great question. Say, Who do you give thanks to on Thanksgiving? That's a great question. Ask, Who do you give thanks to? Hopefully, they'll say, Well, what about you? Who do you give thanks to? And you get a chance to talk. Say something. Be courageous for Jesus. Let's be witnesses. Thirdly, and we've touched on this already, be warned about the dangers of Babylon the great. I'm pleading with any of you who are drawn in, male or female, into sexual secret, sexual sin, I'm urging you to flee the wrath to come. Flee to Christ. God has the power to deliver you. He has the power to set you free from habits that have been corrupting your nature. Come out and be separate, says the Lord. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the eternality of hell. Pray that God would give me the right words to say at the time. It's not a sermon that I would choose to preach on my own, but as a consecutive verse-by-verse expositor, I'm delivered from my own cowardice. I don't think we should assume that everyone who might assemble here next week knows the things that are in this text or believes that they're true. I think we need to face it and say, Lord, teach me the truth. But then finally, look ahead to the joys of heaven. I don't know what that new song is going to sound like, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to be in your word today. Thank you for the things that we've learned. Father, I pray that you would please strengthen each of us to be courageous witnesses for Christ, that we would do the work that you have for us to do. Father, I pray that you give us compassion on those who are as yet on the outside looking in help us to love them to cherish their souls and to be willing to speak the truth to them even though it's painful thank you for the truth you've spoken to us this morning we pray in jesus name amen
0: thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of god and build his kingdom only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org